when you're out the front here. Well, we continue this morning working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus today, and we've just hit chapter 2. For those who are joining with us, perhaps, and haven't been through chapter 1, we've made it to chapter 2. So if you'd like to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start from the first verse there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, most of us tend towards an overinflated view of ourselves and an underinflated view of God. And Paul has already dealt with this underinflated view of God in chapter 1. In his description of God, in his prayer at the end of chapter 1, God's power is described as incomparably great. He is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and he's above every title that can be given. This is how he's described in chapter 1 in that prayer that Pastor Glenn led us through last week. And now in chapter 2, he turns his attention to us And our bubble is about to be burst. You know, statistics suggest that most of us generally think that we're pretty good. And that by being good, that will earn us a place in heaven. And sadly, this is a view that is even prevalent among many, many Christians. In a survey conducted by the Barna Group in the US, 46% of Christians were expecting eternal salvation because of confession of sin and acceptance of Christ as their saviour. Yet a greater amount, 52% of Christians, were holding to a works-orientated means of God's acceptance. And we think that, well, maybe we don't fit into that category 
but all of us find it very hard not to compare ourselves to others and to make a mental tally. Uh, we look around, we see what one person does and what another person does and what we do. And although we would say we don't do it, most of us do look upon some people more highly than we do others. I haven't murdered anyone, so that puts me a little bit higher up the tally. I tell the truth, I support some charities, you know, I might even occasionally take a meal to one of my elderly neighbours. Most of us come out of our own mental stock take pretty high. We think that we're not so bad. Well, having set the bar up here in chapter one for the risen Christ, Paul is about to make a very shocking assessment of our condition without Christ. Christ is up here and then chapter two opens up with and you or in the NIV, as for you, Christ is up here, as for you, you're dead without him. And that's the balloon popping. That's our overinflated image of ourselves bursting. You're dead without Christ. There is no good works that you could do that would earn you anything without Christ. You are dead. And we're all familiar with death. We know what it means to be dead. To be dead is to be completely without life. A dead person is powerless. They're incapable. But before we run off drawing lots of analogies from corpses, we need to be certain that this is actually how the Bible uses this word dead. So we're going to look just at a few examples briefly. So beginning at the top right of your screen there, Romans 10.9 says, but God raised him from the dead. He's talking about Christ. God raised him from the dead. So here the word is teamed up with the. The dead becomes a collective noun. It's a group of people who share the same fate. They're all corpses. Next picture down, Matthew 9.24. Jesus says, the little girl isn't dead. She's just asleep. Clearly, there's a corpse in mind here as well. There's a body that you can point to. That body is not dead, just asleep. Next one down, Luke 7, 12. Jesus is in a town called Nain. And as he's approaching the gates of the town, he's met by a funeral procession. There's a dead person being carried out. Again, there's a body in view there. The Bible, tell, the Bible uses the word dead. It says, as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. And then finally in John 11.39, Jesus arrives, arrives in Bethany after the death of Lazarus. And he says, take away the stone. But Martha replies, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there'll be a bad odour for he's been there for four days. 
So here we've got four different examples of where the word dead is used in the Bible and all of them have one thing in common. In each case, there's a body that you can point to. So in that case, dead means, as we understand it, dead. But there are many, many examples in the Bible where the word dead is used and there is no body that you can point to. So what does it mean there? Well, the pictures on your left there come from Luke 15, a very well-known story of the prodigal son. A man has two sons. One of them requests his inheritance early and he leaves town and go, leaves the farm and goes off for what the Bible describes as high living. And he has a great time and he blows the money and eventually the money runs out. And he finds himself tending pigs. Eventually he comes to his senses, he returns home and he's welcomed by the father who has been longing for the son to return. And he's so happy to see him that he throws a party in the son's honour, making brother number two very angry. Brother number two is the brother who stayed home, the brother who didn't ask for his inheritance, the brother who's continued to work on the farm. He's angry at his father welcoming the, the first son home. And the father takes him aside and he explains to him, this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive again. Well, in that case, there was no corpse. The brother was very much alive and living the whole time. He was alive and living while he was partying and spending all the father's money. He was alive and living while he was tending the pigs. But while he was in that far country, he was as good as dead to the family because he was separated or cut off from them. If we look at Romans 6, 11, and, and this particular verse or this concept can be found in a number of places, I think Galatians and, and first or second Peter as well. The Apostle Paul describes our condition as dead to sin. And by that, he doesn't mean that we're like a corpse incapable of sinning because we all know that we, we go on sinning. But he means that we are now separated from sin or separated from the effects of sin on our eternal future. We're no longer bound by sin. And then in James 2.26, the term dead is used to describe the kind of faith that is separated from works. doesn't mean there was no faith, but it's a kind of useless kind of faith, as James describes it. It is a faith that is separated from works. So a, a quick summary look at these examples teaches us that when there's a corpse at hand, clearly dead means dead, as we understand it. But when there's not... We have to be very careful about how we interpret this word and perhaps the notion of a separateness is a more accurate understanding of this word. The brother was separated from the family so he wasn't functioning as a brother should. We Christians are separated from sin because it no longer has the hold over us. 
that it should, and faith separated from works is no longer functioning as faith should. So after a very long-winded explanation, returning to our passage, the primary meaning of being dead in your transgressions and sins would appear to be being separated from God, not functioning as one should in relationship with him. And the worst part of this state of deadness is that for the most part, when we're in that state, we're completely unaware of it. Prodigal son gave no thought to what great humiliation he'd caused the father in asking for that inheritance. He gave no thought to the burden of sin that he was carrying while he was spending all that money and having a great time. And he gave no thought to the, the father or the, son or the other brother who were left at home and, and the burden that he was causing them. It took humiliation and starvation to burst his bubble and to bring him down from that overinflated view of himself and to understand his true position. And when he does, this is what he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. When brought to his knees, that was his own self-assessment and it was accurate, but it took a personal crisis to get him there. You know, there was once an Indian evangelist and he would preach the gospel enthusiastically. And on one of these occasions, he was preaching enthusiastically to a large crowd. And on this particular day, he was laboring the point about the burden of sin. And a young man in the crowd, perhaps in his late teens, early 20s, he was having none of it. And so he started shouting out and interrupting the preacher as he was giving his message. He says, you talk about this burden of sin, I tell you, I feel none of it, he said. And then to add further insult and to further ridicule the preacher, he said, how heavy is this burden that you're speaking about? Is it maybe 80 pounds? Or maybe it's only 10 pounds? Tell me how heavy is this burden, he replied. And the preacher replied simply, tell me if you laid 400 pounds on a corpse, would it feel the load? No, of course not, said the youth, because it's dead. And the preacher replied, that spirit too is dead, which feels no load of sin. And that's the thing about our true state before God. For the most part, we feel nothing of it. We're like that prodigal son out for a good time, blissfully unaware of this great burden of sin bearing down on us and keeping us apart from God. Now, according to a, a 2017 study, again conducted in the US, only 28% of Americans recognise that they are sinners and that Jesus is the only way to overcome sin. The rest of them either don't believe that there is such a thing as sin they don't believe that they themselves are sinners. They're quite okay with being sinners. 
or they believe that sin is something that they can work at themselves um, and deal with without Jesus. What all of these responses have in common is that they fail to feel that great burden of sin bearing down upon them because they're blissfully unaware of the spiritual danger that they are in. These people see their sin as a way of perhaps admitting that they're not perfect, which they would probably see as not a bad character trait. Oh, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. But they don't believe it makes them evil or worthy of any punishment. All of us, says Paul, were once like this. How were we once like this? Remember, he's writing this letter here to Christians in Ephesus. We were like this when we were held captive by sin. And Richard Koken provides a helpful analogy here when he paints verses 2 and 3 in terms of three evil prison guards who work together to keep us captive to sin and death. And the first of these guards is the world. And what this particular guard looks like depends on which part of the world you're living in. But in the West, paradoxically, the world works to keep us captive by holding out the illusion of freedom. I'm free to choose my own objects of worship. I'm free to choose my own way of God. And that can be any way I feel like. It doesn't have to involve Jesus. It's an anything goes sort of attitude that puts me at the centre and puts me first. And we remain captive to this worldview until God reveals himself to us in Christ. The second of these evil captors is the devil, whom Paul describes as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, you might recall a couple of weeks ago, we discussed this notion of the heavenly realms and how important that is in this letter to the Ephesian church. And the heavenly realms, we learned, was the spiritual dimension in which God and all the spiritual powers and all the believers exist together. Well, in Hebrew thinking, the particular part of that dimension in which the devil lives, they called the air. And they considered it to be a spiritual sphere between heaven and earth. And the devil works in that dimension to keep us captive mainly by telling us lies. His lies make us doubt the very existence of God. They make us doubt the truth of his word. And they feed our overinflated sense of self by telling us that what we're doing is not really sin. Murder is sin and rape is sin, but the things that we do, they're not sin. That's what the devil tries to tell us. I'm a good person. All of us at one stage have been captive to these lies that the devil feeds us. The third member of this trio is the flesh or our sinful nature. In Galatians chapter 5, he spells out what these desires of the flesh might be. He lists them as sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. These three, the world, the devil, and the flesh, they work together. And they are so effective at keeping us captive because not only are we unaware of the gravity of our problem and unable to break free from it, we actually don't want to because we like it. We like feeling that we're master of our own destiny. We like indulging ourselves. We like whatever attention we can get. And we enjoy getting one up on someone else, however that might come about. And because of these three, like everyone else, all of us were at one time dead in our transgressions and sins. And there are no degrees of dead. You can't be more dead than someone else. Dead is dead. You're either dead or you're not. And Paul says that we're all dead and therefore all deserving of the wrath of God. There's a story told of two young friends and they're both about to start work in a new town. And they're both in need of accommodation. The young guys in their early 20s. And to their great surprise, the father of a mutual friend, a very wealthy businessman, is about to go overseas to work for two years and he needs someone to take care of his estate while he's away. And this property is so enormous that each of these two friends could have a separate wing of the house and never really have to have much to do with each other. And they can hardly believe it when the owner asks for only $10 a week for them to stay there. And the day arrives for the owner to depart and he calls the two young friends together. And he warns them that the place is big and that it'll need a lot of looking after. Be sure to keep in touch, he says. Respond to my emails, but have a great time. Enjoy the place. And so the two friends move in and they take one wing each of the mansion. One of them is a party animal. Night after night, the place is full of people coming through and there's mud tramped through the carpet. There's drinks spilt on the upholstery and, and the carpet. There's holes kicked in the walls from the occasional brawl that breaks out. Pretty soon, the west wing is unrecognisable. The friend in the east wing, he lives a much quieter lifestyle. And he keeps the east wing spotless and well maintained. Eventually, two years passes by. The west wing is unrecognisable the East Wing is still in pretty good condition. But to the shock of everyone in town, after two years away, the owner returns and throws both of them out of the house. One of them treated the place like a tip and the other treated it well. But the owner, when he returned, treated them both exactly the same. And when asked about this by the townsfolk, the owner replied, neither of them had made any contact with him in the entire two years that they'd been there. Neither of them had responded to any of his emails 
and neither of them had bothered to pay the pittance that he'd asked them for their lodging there. And the end result was that the house had been seriously damaged and the owner had been ignored. So both of them became objects of his wrath. All of us live as tenants in this world because of the extreme generosity of God and some of us make a very obvious mess of our lives. Others appear to be more clean living and well behaved. But whether we're the clean living sort, the kind that we would call good, or the other kind that revels in our sin, if we ignore God, we will remain separate from him and we will be objects of his wrath. And there is nothing that we can do of our own accord about this. We would remain captives to our own sin if it were not for these two most beautiful words in all of the Bible, the next two words in this passage, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. But God is motivated not by our goodness or by anything that we could have possibly done, but by his own mercy and great love. He provided us a way to break free from sin, to throw off these three evil captors by sending Jesus to pay that ransom for us and die in our place. And all we need do is accept his generous gift and unite ourselves with Christ through faith and then a remarkable transformation will take place. Have you ever seen this little plant here? It's called the Rose of Jericho. Does anyone know it? No? I didn't either until a couple of years ago when it came across uh, my desk. You couldn't imagine any plant more unlike a rose than this particular rose. It's called the Rose of Jericho, but it's totally unrelated to anything we know of as a rose. To me, when I saw this little plant, it was only about this big, maybe that big, it looked completely dead. It was like a little dried up ball of not much. If you squashed it, it just kind of was all brittle and would have fallen apart. They're not very big, these little things. They're dry, they're brittle. When the desert winds blow, they pick up and move like a tumbleweed and they blow to another location. I could not imagine why anyone would want to buy one of these because it looked completely beyond hope. Even the greenest of green thumbs would surely not want to waste time with this lost cause of a plant. That's what I thought until someone showed me what happens when you put one in water. Within a space of only a few hours, a complete transformation takes place. It only takes about two hours um, and it'll start to look like that and by the next day it'll be completely green and look something like this. 
That, for me, is a picture of grace. Separated by God, from God by sin, we tumble around on this earth and for all intents and purposes, we are spiritually dead. But united with Christ, the source of our spiritual nourishment, united by faith, new life springs from the dead. This little plant, by the way, is from a family of plants known as resurrection plants. The little plant has nothing to do with its own transformation. Without the water, it would continue to appear dead and after a number of years, it can only survive like that for maybe four or five years at the most. Eventually, its fate would be sealed. Without water, it will eventually die, just as our fate would be sealed without Jesus. Jesus, for us, kicked a winning goal, but the whole team gets to celebrate and share in the great prize. Through faith in Christ, we share in his death and in his resurrection. So we have already been raised up with Christ and are already seated with him in the heavenly realms. We're right there with Jesus. Our place is secured, and if that wasn't good enough, the best is yet to come, for verse 7 speaks of our future resurrection and glorification. Now, Paul's point here is very clear. He repeats it no less than five times. Verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, the beginning of the verse, for it is by grace that you have been saved. The end of verse 8, this is not from yourselves. Verse 9, it is not by works. Verse 10, we are God's workmanship. He couldn't be clearer if he tried. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. In our fallen state, we are unable even to recognise our own need for a saviour. It is God's spirit that convicts us of our own sin. And it is Christ our saviour who does for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. And all we need to do is to accept his precious gift of salvation for this remarkable transformation to begin. And as it does, little by little, just as that rose of Jericho plant was transformed, so we too are transformed, little by little, more into the image of Christ. And as, God's, as we are God's workmanship, so our lives should bear the image of the one who created us. We should bear his mark, just like a, a piece of artwork bears the mark of its creator. You can usually tell... A Picard, you know, a, who has painted, you know, of the famous painters, you can tell their certain style. The, the paintings bear the mark of the one who created them. And so we should expect to see the mark of God in our lives. There should be acts of mercy and love and kindness, good works that he has prepared ahead of time for us to do. So this morning, if you are a Christian, rejoice in just who you are in Christ. For once you were dead, 
but now a miraculous transformation has happened by grace. You are made alive in Christ. And if you have not yet accepted God's gracious gift of salvation, then make today your day to do just that. You are no better and no worse, no more or less deserving than any other sinner. But if you accept Paul's description of yourself from verses 1 to 3 of today's passage and will accept God's gift of Christ as your saviour, then everything in those later verses, verses 4 to 10, is yours. Shall we pray?